0: Hi, everyone. Before we jump into today's episode, I wanna invite you to come behind the scenes with me. I am writing a book on sustainable ambition, and the book is likely for many of you listening. It's for people who are ambitious, yet not at all costs, and are figuring out how to better align their life and work and continue to pursue their ambitions in a sustainable way. Does that sound like you? The book is early in development, and to start, over the summer and into the fall, I'll be hosting workshops to learn about and test some of the principles, practices, and tools of sustainable ambition and what I'm writing about in the book. The workshops are all free. You'll walk away with new insights and more clarity on how to make your ambitions more sustainable, how to better align your life and work, and how to pursue your ambitions in a more sustainable way. You'll also have a new way of thinking about ambitions and tools to come back to again and again to help you better align life and work and identify opportunities for sustainability. Plus, you'll be able to help me shape what is most valuable for you and others, which would be super impactful and such a gift. I'd love to have you join me on this journey and get a front row seat to what I'm developing. Again, the workshops will all be free and in exchange, I would simply love your feedback with a short survey and feedback in the session. You can find more details and sign up to join me at sustainableambition.com behindthebook behind the book. That's sustainableambition.com behindthebook behind the book. I hope to see you in the coming months. What can we learn about sustainable ambition from amazing women who are changing the world? That's what I was interested in exploring with my guests today, Lauren Schiller and Hadley Dinak, authors of the new book, It's a Good Day to Change the World, Inspiration and Advice for a Feminist Future. First off, many of us are looking to do meaningful, motivating work. This book provides both inspiration through the stories of these amazing women and shows you the way to make change through the framework that Lauren and Hadley offer. From my view, the women in the book are champions of sustainable ambition. They are ambitious, and they know they need to sustain themselves to keep progressing their work. And that's what Lauren and Hadley pull through in the book, accompanied by amazing illustrations by Rosie Petri. The book really is beautiful all around, the topic, the stories, and the illustrations. I think it's an inspiration for us all. Now, a minor note on this episode, apologies in advance, that we had a bit of technical difficulties, so the sound is a little off, but I hope you will enjoy this important conversation nonetheless. So let's hear more about these women and their stories from Lauren Schiller and Hadley Dynak, and hear how we can all step into making a difference, because it really is a good day to change the world. Welcome both to the show. Thanks for having us. Wonderful to be here. Before we dig in talking about the book, let me formally introduce you both. Lauren Schiller is an award-winning interviewer and the creator of numerous podcasts and radio shows, including Inflection Point, about how women rise up, build power, and lead change, which inspired the book we're going to discuss. Hadley Dynak is an activist, nonprofit leader, and creative producer. She teamed up with Lauren on Inflection Point in 2019 to build partnerships and design opportunities for listeners to take action on the issues shared by the incredible women featured on the show. I just find the book so inspiring on many levels. I really could ask you something about every page and every story, but we only have so much time, as you know. So I do want to come, Lauren, to you in terms of if you could tell us a little bit more about Inflection Point and then... What really led to um, you then translating that into the book?
1: I was looking around at what was happening across the United States in terms of the growth of equality for women and the slow pace of it and wanting to understand what does it take for women to build power and lead change. And I was seeing that there were all these women's conferences popping up and all these women's spaces were popping up. And we were hearing that hey, there are more CEOs that are women now than there ever have been before. There's evidence that when women lead companies, they're more profitable. Um, but at the same time, I was also seeing that the wage gap still existed. Um, there was sexual harassment and assault still existed. You know, We've been making progress in spite of these persistent barriers. And so I wanted to talk with women about how they did it, how they made change, how they progressed in their own careers, and what happens when women are in charge. So I pitched the idea to my local public radio station, KALW, and they liked the idea. There was really nothing else like it on their station, certainly. There's definitely not a nationally syndicated show at that time, although there were um, a few shows around the country on single stations who were touching on this topic. And I decided that that's what I wanted to do, and they agreed that I could do a pilot. So I, I recorded a few interviews with several different women and mostly entrepreneurs at this time, and they aired them and they got listener feedback. And, you know, it was sort of like, you know, holding, <laughs> holding on tight to hear what the public would have to say about this, these conversations. The idea was conversations with women changing the status quo. So the feedback was positive and the station manager said, hey, if you want to keep making them, we will keep airing them. And I said, that's great because I already have 12 interviews lined up but I'm ready to start coming to the studio every Friday. And so I started a weekly one hour show on KALW and because I had the podcast background and at that time it was not 2015, podcasting had really started uh, bubbling up as a thing that people actually listened to. And So created the podcast as well and then started getting other stations around the country to pick it up and, and they did.
0: And that ran for how long? Like, when did you stop doing the show? And then how did that translate into the book?
1: So the show ran from 2015 to the heart of the pandemic in 2020. And I like to say that it was bookended by Hillary Clinton almost becoming president, so our country's almost seeing its first woman president, to our country seeing uh, its first female vice president and woman of color in that role. So when the pandemic hit, it became very challenging to record interviews. And at that point, I was already 200 interviews in. And I knew that the content that, the, that it contained was still, still, number one, super relevant. And number two, I wanted it to be super accessible. So in order to preserve it, if you will, I um, connected with WGBH, American Archive, for public broadcasting and asked them if they'd like to put it into their archive in the Library of Congress. And they listened to episodes and agreed that it was a good fit and it belonged there. So that was the first thing I did. And then the second thing I did was ask Hadley if she'd like to write a book with me so that we could capture these amazing insights and tools that we'd heard from these women, especially as Hadley joined, we were focusing, we had moved from entrepreneurs really much more into the activism space because as you recall, Hillary Clinton did not become president and all of those barriers for women that we were already facing seemed to become um, much more present and persistent and a little bit nerve wracking and, and scary in some ways. So we wanted to have something that would give us hope and create a sense of optimism and that we actually had some agency over our future. So I approached Hadley with the idea Much to my delight, she said yes.
0: Hadley, can you tell us more about what you feature in the book and how you, perhaps how you framed the essential guide for action and steps for change? I was curious about that.
2: So, Lauren interviewed over 200 people for the show. We knew that we wanted to create this optimistic essential guide for change that could apply to any change that anyone was trying to make in their lives at any point. We wanted to make it accessible. So organizing that content into a framework made a lot of sense. So we had the hard challenge of figuring out who do we include in this book from these these interviews that she's done that can help tell this story. We kind of parallel thinking about the framework, which we organized into this kind of arc of change or journey for change um, into five steps that begins with thinking about an idea and preparing for that change, moving into creating, transforming, and then sharing the successes that you've had and the failures that uh, you've encountered along the way, because that's an important part of all ambition, I think, learning from, from both success and failure. So we landed with 30. We have six stories uh, per chapter, and each of those stories has a little bit of first-person narrative about a, a particular story or challenge or incident that, that they've encountered in their own journey, and then their tools to, to make change as well as their advice to keep going and sustain themselves and everyone else along the way in in a variety of different strategies and, and bits of advice.
0: This probably is why I found it so inspirational. I do innovation work. And in that work, it's common practice to look for what are called kind of like extreme users in quotes, I will say. And I feel like those extreme users really provide inspiration for possible solutions. And I see these change makers that you feature as kind of extreme users, if you will, uh, representing sustainable ambition. So I see them as these women who are really ambitious for making change in the world and yet also know that they need to sustain themselves, or at least that's certainly what you pulled forward in the book and re- and represented. So Lauren, I, I was curious, why do you find these women so inspiring and why do you think we should find inspiration in their stories?
1: These women are inspiring because they are taking on seemingly intractable problems and figuring out ways to solve them. And they're figuring out ways to solve them in a way that is collaborative, um, that taps into knowledge that already exists. Um, They're aware of what what they're good at and what their limitations are. They're not afraid to bring in people who can help make things happen they are not without fear and they're not without understanding of risk, but they're willing to face those fears and embrace those risks. And I mean, they just get stuff done. And I think that that is really what is inspiring. I feel like we have a lot. I mean, we can talk about the, you know all, all of the issues that we're dealing with right now in terms of bodily autonomy, gun violence, LGBTQ rights, the environment. I mean, the list the list goes mm-hmm. on and on. And it would be very easy to just feel mired down in these concerns, and that there's absolutely nothing that can be done to address them or solve for them or take a new approach for them. And the women that we're featuring in this book have all said, no, we can take this on and we can change the course of history. It is not a done deal, and there's much to be done. And the way that they talk about the work that they do is, I mean, that's really what we focused on in the book is we extracted the the tools for change that they use so that it, you know, for anyone that's working on any issue, whether it's one of the ones that I listed or something else, you can flop this thing open and find some words of some words that will encourage you and make you feel a that you're not alone and B that there's, you know, this is a tangible thing that you can actually do to take action
0: this was one of the things that really resonated with me in the book was how optimistic so many of the women really frankly all of them were about what they were taking on just as you're alluding to lauren i you know there was alex sangster who is hopefully i'm getting her name right who was in there with her grandmother And she said, quote, like, we are all little particles that can cause change, like the butterfly wings that can create a tsunami in another place. So this idea of holding this inspiration for all of us that we can all create change. And then Elise Hoag, who said, always come from a place of optimism and opportunity. So there were so many voices in the book about coming from this place of both calling us all forward to step into change and also to not be daunted by it. To kind of recognize that you that you can approach this with optimism and that, you know, I think some folks in the book also talked about imagine an amazing future, you know, and so is that something that really spoke to all of you? Like what inspires you when you're hearing people kind of come from this place of possibility?
2: Well, I think that change, making change at any level is exhausting and can be demoralizing uh, my mom and I were just talking about the the long road that women have had to walk in making the strides that we have today. You know, a lot of times we feel like uh, things are 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 going backwards and, and in many ways you can point to examples where that is the case but we also can can think about things one of the people in the book betty reed saskin who is the oldest woman in the book um almost 102 and who knew her great grandmother who was a slave talks about how there is this upward spiral so while change may be slow we do keep hitting and we may hit the same place over and over again that we are moving incrementally upward. So I feel like those ideas help us be motivated, but also we need to recognize how difficult this is. And the idea of taking a step back and thinking about how to sustain ourselves is actually a radical act. One of the other people in the book, uh, Sean Korn, talks about how there is this kind of political strategy if you want to keep people who are trying to make change tired. That because the more tired that we are, the more likely we are to stop. You know, someone else, uh, Anne-Marie Slaughter talks about interval training, and she's referencing that in respect to kind of our our careers over time. But you could also think about that idea, you know, in a a more regular basis where we have to go hard and then we have to take a break for ourselves and let somebody else step in. And then we also, when we have the opportunity and the privilege, need to look at those around us and think, wow, they're going really hard. How can I step in and give them a break? so that they can uh, sustain their work moving forward.
0: This is one of the aspects that I really appreciated about the book and, you know, was the fact that you guys pulled forward this sustaining aspect and how important that component is. The other piece that you were just talking about, Hadley, is this idea of doing things together. And I thought that that was just a common theme throughout the book, this idea of really don't go it alone. And there's a historical aspect as well. Like we're standing on the shoulders of people who came before us and that they can support us, but that it's important to build with others, with, you know, be in community, be in partnership, even some aspect of positive relationships. Lauren, I'm curious if there's a story in particular that you might want to pull forward here to kind of that highlights this idea of like, what is the importance of really working together in this aspect of creating change?
1: Well, there, there are two stories that come to mind. And, and I will say that the, the list of people in It's a Good Day to Change the World is a really interesting and kind of eclectic mix because we wanted to get perspectives from different ages, different regions, different ethnicities, and so on. But it's also a mix of people that you may know, like Lily Tomlin is in the book, Gloria Steinem's in the book, Sarah Silverman's in the book. But then there's a number of people who you may have never heard of, but the work that they're doing is extremely impactful and they're probably up and comers. So one of the people that comes to mind for me is Isha Clark. Isha is a youth climate activist and was one of the founders of an organization called Youth vs. Apocalypse and was the initiator of the first ever youth climate strike in San Francisco. And she talks about this idea of building momentum and finding other people who are already doing the work because if you add your energy to the work that they're doing, then it will help build momentum and it will also help you have a sense of community that there are others in it with you. The other person I wanted to mention is Rhea Sue, who, when I spoke with her, was the head of the NRDC, the National Resource Defense Council, and she took on the government of Flint, Michigan, the city and the state for the lead in the water pipes And similarly, when the Trump administration came in, she was prepared to take on all the pushback that they were creating around the role of the Environmental Protection Agency. And one of the things that she did was actually sponsor the very first Women's March because she recognized that environmental impacts affect women, that environmental rights are women's rights, and that by standing in solidarity, that is where you gather strength. We have a couple of stories that involve two people working together and the power of their collaboration. The Kitchen Sisters talk about the, the the beauty of collaboration. Kate Schatz and Miriam Klein-Stahl, who are the authors and illustrator of the Rad Women A to Z books, which feature women around the world who are either historically have made change or working on change now. And they talk about how their skill sets can be complementary one is a writer one is an illustrator one speaks to the reader through words and one speaks to the reader through illustrations so i think that there are examples like this throughout the book and and even i think for each of us as we think about the people in our own lives and we think about the things that we want to do and make a difference on identifying what those around us have to offer and who may share a similar goal can be a really Powerful force for making change. You know, this is not a world in which we have to do everything on our own and we don't have to be, feel like we are the only ones responsible for or capable of getting done the thing. There are others out there who are ready and willing to help.
0: These stories for me also kind of called us forth to challenge ourselves to really go for it and also to embrace failure. I'm wondering, Hadley, are there a couple of any stories that resonate with you that really call forward or speak to this idea of having courage and challenging ourselves and really going for it?
2: Yeah, three actually come to mind off the top of my head. Um, the first is Carolyn Paul, who was San Fran- one of San Francisco's first female firefighters, and is author of a book called "Gutsy Girls," and and she talks about how her mother was growing up in uh, in a time. W- particularly given her own mother's experience where she didn't feel safe letting her children take risks and do things. And, and so Carolyn's mom wanted them to have all these experiences and, and was fairly hands-off and encouraged them in all of these different ways. And and, and she's done incredible things, but she talks about how we, we sometimes mistake fear and, ex- and exhilaration. And so that there's this contrast between the two and and this idea that we have to take risks to push push ourselves and that sometimes that exhilaration is actually what we're feeling, not so much fear. Um, the second is Rachel Simmons. Um, she is a really interesting, I think, example of someone who was on this very fast track. She you know, was at a, a prestigious college. She got a Rhodes Scholarship. She went to Oxford to study and realized that this was not her place and these were not her people. And instead of deciding to stay and just finish this program and have it be a feather in her cap, she held true to herself and left. And even the president of her university back in the US kind of berated her for saying, you're an embarrassment to our school, that that you got this prestigious award and, and you left. And it wasn't until she was able to process this actually while living in Africa and teaching at a girls leadership academy there, that she was able to tell her story and to encourage other people to realize that you're not always going to be perfect. You're not always going to be on this fast track, that you can take a break and Maybe that's a failure in one respect, but it's not necessarily a failure in your whole life and in the big picture. And then the third person I was going to talk about is Rashma Sajani. And she was the founder of Girls Who Code, as she's doing a lot around caregiving and uh, the importance of paid family leave. And she had run for political office in her community as a immigrant whose family had no idea how to support her and was so confident that that she could take on this established politician. And unfortunately for her in that instance, failed miserably. And then talks about how that that idea of failure is really a life lesson to continue to try new things and to tell those stories to the people around you.
0: I want to come back because you did say, you know, one of the themes for me around sustainable ambition is this idea of allowing our ambitions to ebb and flow over time. And you interviewed Anne-Marie Slaughter and you mentioned her earlier, her article in The Atlantic, Why Women Still Can't Have It All, and her book, Unfinished Business, really spoke to me despite the fact that I don't have kids. And yet part of her message inspired this very podcast and the work that I do around sustainable ambition. I'm curious, like, what did you take away from that conversation around what Anne-Marie Slaughter has kind of inspired in our world and her desire to make change?
1: So Anne-Marie was the first female director of policy planning for the U.S. Department of State, and it was a really big deal when she left that job to make more time for her sons. And she got so much pushback from her community and her colleagues that she decided to write this piece for The Atlantic, Why Women Still Can't Have It All. My understanding actually is that is not the title that she chose for that piece, but that is the title that the piece chose for her. Uh, but it really caused a stir. And she did go on to write this book called Unfinished Business, which is the point at which I was able to speak with her. And really, she got a few main themes that, that run through that book that are still so relevant at this time, and that a, a number of people, including Rush Misogyny, who Hadley mentioned a few minutes ago, and Eve Rodsky, have picked up the mantle on. But the idea is that we have to value caregiving as much as we value breadwinning. And secondly, that when women do take time off for caring for a child or a parent, which it's generally the case that it's the women that are taking the time off, it's not like they lose IQ points and are unable to come back and do a great job. But that is kind of how they're perceived, and it's very difficult to re enter the workforce. And she, Anne Marie Slaughter, talks about this idea of interval training that our career is going to have highs and it's going to have lows, and that there are opportunities that we can take advantage of when we're prepared to take those opportunities from a career standpoint. And there are opportunities or challenges that are going to come up in a person's life that we need to take responsibility for and that being penalized from a career standpoint is ridiculous. She's really calling that out as a a problem with the mindset of corporate America. Now, she wrote this book before the pandemic, before Zoom, before companies were starting to realize and actually get done when not everyone is in the office at the same time. But It really does go beyond that. It's about taking time completely off from work so that you can focus on your family. So I, she, was a, she was a major catalyst to the conversation that still goes on today.
0: I wanted to come back to the sustaining aspect of this. And I'm curious if, Halle, for you and also for you, Lauren, are there any sustaining practices that you've embraced from what these women inspired and what they shared with you? Well, I will say
2: that Fabiana Rodriguez, who is one of my favorite stories, although my favorites change Regularly, it depends on my mood, I guess, and and what issues I'm thinking about on any given day. Um, but her sustaining advice is to nurture other living things, particularly plants. And she talks about how that process of caring for a plant, whether you know it's you're watering it or you're picking off its dead leaves or its little scales, like it, it's it's very metaphoric for for our own. Our own self care. So I think that the parallel of what she's saying about caring for plants and this giant new lifestyle project that my family has taken on with our Western Hills Garden endeavor um, rings very much true. So I would say her, I would say her today is is my favorite advice.
0: How about you, Lauren? Is there been a sustaining practice that you've taken on from one of these stories? I
1: like to say that all of these women kind of hang out on my shoulder. Let's just say on the days when things feel really hard, I think about Rebecca Traister. She wrote a book called Good and Mad. She has been a writer for a long time. She has had a feminist lens on her writing for most of her career. And she talks about the value of anger as something, A, that makes women audible to each other, and B, that is something we need to listen to with curiosity and respond to with curiosity. And I really like that she says, it's okay to be angry. And I don't really consider myself an angry person, but I I like this idea that in a world where women, especially, you know, the, women everywhere have have heard this, you know, you you look mad. You you should really smile more. It really makes you look more beautiful. Well, why <laughs> should I smile if things are not going the way that I want them to in this world and I'm feeling angry about it? And I like this idea of taking the complete counter approach and being willing to say I am angry and that's motivating me to do something. That's what keeps me going on some days. On other days, I'm with Hadley. I would just love to care for a plant and pick off its little scales. You know, I own a dog. I, my own advice to keep going is get outside, take walks, talk to other people, be in community. It really does make a difference.
0: I love the dichotomy of those two um, inspirations and for keeping going. So I appreciate you pulling both of those forth. I wanted to ask you both. What was the gift of this experience of these interviews for you and perhaps how you've been changed by them and then going back to them in writing the book?
2: One of the gifts is the collaboration that Lauren and I had on this project. It was a joy to work together. There were hiccups as there always are in every kind of collaborative relationship. But we really, even though we come from different kind of professional backgrounds with Lauren being more in the corporate side and me being more in the social justice nonprofit activism side, we hold a lot of the same ideas as core. And yet we could push each other when we needed to on different um, ideas. So that was one of the main joys was to have us working collaboratively to do justice as best we could to the incredible wisdom that the women in the book offer.
1: I agree with Hadley that we're working together and creating something that is tangible and accessible and easy to use out of an enormous library of work was incredibly gratifying. And having built a friendship on top of the creation of this beautiful product was also another gift that hopefully will, will last forever, as as will this book. Um, but. We had never created a book before, and we had to learn a lot along the way. And I would say that not only has my mindset been transformed by the women that I have spoken with and my ability to proclaim myself as a proud feminist, but I also now feel like when there's an unknown there's a goal at the end of it, that it really is possible to treat every day as an education and to have an open mind about how something's gonna go and learn if it doesn't go the way you think it's gonna go and figure out how to do it better the next time and just keep kind of pushing through that process. I mean, we learned how to make a book and we learned how to do it together. And I think that that, you know, I never went to business school, but I feel
0: like I got this really great education doing this. Well, and it also sounds like you sustained your effort against it as well by working together. And that's, you know, comes full circle to one of the themes that you learned from talking to all these women. Yeah. At the beginning,
2: one of the the mantras that we had or one of the rituals that we had at the beginning was to ask ourselves at the end of each one of our work sessions, did we have a good time? Did we mm. have fun? do we want to do this again? So we said I yes, obviously. That. I would be remiss if I didn't talk for a second about another joy that I have in making this book. First of all, that joy is a critical part of what we see as a feminist future, that um, you know, an equal, just, and joyful world is how we define that. And I believe that joy is essential. Rosie Petrie, our illustrator, was able to approach these profiles that she did, these illustrative profiles with such joy. Her color palette is vibrant and exciting. And it really, I think when you talk about how you feel optimistic when you open it, I attribute a lot of that to the design and the layout and the look and feel of the book. Uh, Rosie just knocked it out of the park, and the metaphor that she uses, because a lot of her work in her fine art is weaving and quilting, and and so the lines, drawings, once you have the book, you will see, represent all of these different layers that each one of us has, and that shares our similarities as well as our uniqueness. I wholeheartedly agree with
0: that. It is beautiful. I do want to ask, and maybe Hadley, I'll start with you. What is your ambition for the book, and impact the impact you hope it has in the world?
2: I really hope that that the book is something that people think is beautiful and practical and useful. That it's something when you own it, which if you don't and you're listening, you should. Um, that you pick up time and time again whenever you're thinking about some aspect of change you're trying to make, because I really feel like on every page, you know, as you said at the beginning, Kathy, that there is, there's, there's insight and wisdom that can apply in lots of different circumstances. So I guess that's my first thing. And the second thing that I'll say is, you know, given that we are, you know, thinking of this Book as uh, having a long tail, if you will, as having a long lifespan, and, and its usefulness stretches. That um, you know, we're we're trying to build up partnerships and think about ways that this could, this book could be used for organizations or for teams as a gift, as inspiration, as a guide, any of those things.
0: Wonderful, and Lauren, to close things. What's a final takeaway or guidance on making change in the world that you'd love to leave our listeners with?
1: Final takeaway, I love it. The, to be asked to sum it up in one sentence is such a great exercise. There are so many great nuggets in this book. It's it really is hard to choose, but I would say that to sum it up is to pull a quote from the second to last page of the book which is trust in your power to change the world. I think we all have it in us and I think that it's all doable. And I think that the way that we've structured this book with five steps is a great way to think about how to approach any problem. And you break it down into bite-sized pieces and you take on what you can take on, when you can take it on, and little by little progress will get made. Big progress will get made. And when then you when you then multiply that exponentially by everyone else who is also doing the same thing, it really does make a difference in the world. So Lauren, where can people learn more about the book? It's a Good Day to Change the World is available at your local bookstore. And you can also find it online on bookshop.org or on Amazon. But all of it is pulled together at itsagooddaybook.com.
0: Thank you for writing this book and bringing it into the world to contribute to that motion and that movement and to that tsunami that is building in the world of change and making the world better. Again, I think it's a beautiful gift for all of us. And I hope everyone does go out and get a copy of it to bring into their homes and into their world. Thank you both for being on with me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Kathy. Thank you so much. This was fun. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Lauren and Hadley. Their book is one to savor and come back to time and again and get inspired with each read. You might find yourself asking, what is my next ambition? How can I help make meaningful change in the world? And how can I sustain myself along the way? The book offers the guide, so I hope you'll pick it up. With that, thanks again for joining me today. Get show notes for this episode and others at sustainableambition.com slash podcasts. I'll look forward to seeing you next time for another story of sustainable ambition.